Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. On today's episode, the History Guy tells two stories of engineering feats in New York City. First, he tells the story of Alfred Beach's secret subway, and then he talks about some of the lesser-known historical tales of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. In 1867, people of all types crowded up to the 14th Street Armory in New York City to attend the 37th Annual American Institute Fair, where an enterprising inventor was demonstrating a revolutionary new idea. Only four years previously, the London Underground, the world's first subway system, had been opened, but they were plagued by the soot of their steam-powered engines. The inventor of this new device, Alfred Beach, promised something similar and yet different. But his vision for the future of transportation would end up mired in the politics and economics of its present. The history of New York's secret subway deserves to be remembered. Alfred Beach was born on September 1st, 1826, in Springfield, Massachusetts, the son of Moses Beach, owner of the New York Sun, and one of the founders of the Associated Press. The Beach family became wealthy thanks to the paper, and Alfred was sent to a prestigious private school for his education. His father had not been born wealthy and had shown an interest in invention early in his life, inventing a rag-cutting machine and attempting to manufacture a gunpowder engine for propelling balloons. Alfred's first job was selling newspapers on the corner of New York City streets as a newsboy, but he was soon setting type and later became a reporter. In 1845, Alfred and several friends paid $800 for the then-obscure Scientific American magazine. The magazine had only a few hundred subscribers when they purchased it. Beach soon launched the Scientific American Patent Agency, which promised to help inventors secure patents, for a fee, of course. It was the first business of its kind, and soon the agency was filing 3,000 patents a year, and by 1848, the magazine had 10,000 readers. Through Scientific American, Beach helped Thomas Edison patent the photograph. He also worked with Alexander Graham Bell and Samuel Morse. In 1848, Moses Beach retired and left control of the sun to Alfred, then just age 22, and his brother. Alfred was not just the proprietor of the most important magazine on inventions, but like his father, was a tinkerer, too. In 1856, he appeared at the American Institute Fair with an improvement to the typewriter, which could make embossed letters, which he saw as a means of helping the blind. While it was never produced, it won a gold medal and first prize at the fair that year and was recognized as the most advanced typewriting machine yet. The typewriter was hardly his most ambitious project. From his office on the top floor in New York City, he had a good view of the crowded city streets and the ferries that increasingly carried commuters from Manhattan, Staten Island, and New Jersey. City streets in the mid-19th century were often muddy, trash-strewn, and literally covered in horse poop. Large cities moved slowly as gridlock carriages fought for inches and horses screamed. We can travel from New York halfway to Philadelphia in less time than the length of Broadway, complained a writer in the New York Tribune. Beach's own short walk from his home to his office could take an hour and was fraught with the possibility of getting crushed or trampled. As author and physician Asa Green wrote, To cross the street in New York, you must button your coat tight about you. See that your shoes are secure at the heels. 
settle your hat firmly on your head, look up street and down street at the selfsame moment to see what carts and carriages are upon you, and then run for your life. Beach proposed a solution in Scientific American in November that year. Nothing less than a railway underneath instead of above. This subterranean passage is to be laid down with double track, with a road for foot passengers on either side, the whole to be brilliantly lighted with gas. He imagined carriages pulled by horses, with openings to his subway, on every corner. While his idea might seem prescient today, it was widely ridiculed at the time. One critic opined, It is better to wait for the devil than to make roads down to hell. The issue of city congestion was well established, and solutions had appeared. In 1827, a predecessor to the bus, which could carry 12 people, was constructed for Abraham Bauer. He charged 12 cents a trip, but the idea only caught on in New York and Boston. In Europe, Paris and London were home to an even larger vehicle, an omnibus. In 1831, Bauer introduced an omnibus to New York and soon had over 100 of the things, horse-drawn, in the city. The buses, however, were dangerous and dirty and often raced each other for fares, grazing lampposts all the way. The New York Herald would eventually describe them exasperatedly as bedlam on wheels, while another writer said that they were dirty and filled with brutal ruffians. By 1832, 30 passenger trolleys driven by horse along rails in the city were first introduced in New York. None solved the problem of traffic. On January 9, 1863, London welcomed the Metropolitan Railway after four years of digging through the dirt to produce the world's first subway. To Londoners, the system became known as the Underground, or is better known today, the Tube. But the initial system wasn't without its problems. The trains were steam-powered, and burning steam engines poured soot-filled smoke into the tunnels. The chief inspector of railways warned that an underground road is enormously expensive to construct, and interfered with above-ground transportation while it was being built. That it can never be wholesome or free of deleterious gases, and in foggy weather is always full of a thick atmosphere, which is very disagreeable to the passengers. Around the same time, Beach also heard about another British invention. In 1853, Josiah Latimer Clark had built the Electric and International Telegraph Company, a one-and-a-half-inch tube from a telegraph station to the London Stock Exchange. Their tube was pneumatic and delivered small canisters with telegraphs to brokers. With Thomas Webster Rammel, Clark was able to sell the tubes to the British Post, and in 1863 they had carts installed in the system, which brought parcels and letters straight from the railway to the post office. Mechanics Magazine declared that we feel tolerably certain that the day is not very distant when metropolitan railway traffic can be conducted on this principle. Beats certainly thought so. By 1865, Beach had patented his own pneumatic mail system, which he envisioned beneath all of the city streets. People could drop a letter into a hollow streetlight, which would be collected by a small rail car. He also began preparation for his display at the 1867 American Institute Fair. Beach brought two inventions, and he knew that a flair for the dramatic could sell an invention. His first invention was a 24-foot-long tube, two feet wide, which could move packages by air pressure. Much more impressive was his second display, which hung from the ceiling, stretching across the room. He had built a long plywood tube, and inside was a cylindrical car that just barely fit within. The car could hold ten people and was powered by a large steam-powered fan. With access to Scientific American and the New York Sun, it was simple to drum up excitement, and thousands came to the fair just to take a ride on Beach's pneumatic contraption. Before the fair opened, he had declared in Scientific American that he had developed a system of transportation swift as Aeolus, god of the breezes, and silent as Somnus, god of sleep and dreams. Halfway through the fair, Scientific American carried an article which began, The most novel and attractive feature of the exhibition is by general consent conceded to be 
the pneumatic railway. It is probable that a pneumatic railway of considerable length for regular traffic will soon be laid down near New York, Beach predicted. More than 75,000 people would ride the railway by the end of the fair. The New York Times wrote that passengers through a city tube could be carried from City Hall to Madison Square in five minutes, to Harlem and Manhattanville in 14 minutes, to Washington Heights in 20 minutes. Beach won top prize. A good idea is not, however, by itself enough to change the world. Beach was facing opposition from two important forces. Property owners like John Jacob Astor III, who didn't want New York City's streets dug up to build subways. And the powerful leader of the New York City political machine, William Boss Tweed. Tweed refused to let Beach get funding or a charter. In 1869, Beach instead applied for a pneumatic mail system by proposing a mail tube near Broadway. He planned two four-and-a-half-foot diameter tubes, too small for people to ride. Tweed gave the go-ahead, and Beach was granted a 50-year charter. But Beach never intended to give up that easily. With Tweed satisfied, Beach returned to the legislature asking for a minor change. Instead of two tubes, he would build one larger tube at a cheaper rate than the two. The two smaller tubes would be contained within the larger tunnel. He also deleted the clause for regulatory inspection. Tweed seems not to have noticed the significance of the changes. The scene was set for Beach to build his subway, in secret, almost right across the street, from City Hall. To prove to property owners it wouldn't disturb their property, Beach invented a drill with a unique curved shield that used hydraulic rams. could move 16 inches of soil at a time. Beginning in the gigantic basement of Devlin's clothing store, two floors underground, his teams worked at night, trucking out dirt in wagons. It was not easy work, claustrophobic and sometimes terrifying. They could dig up to eight feet a night. During construction, the shield of Beach's digger suddenly ground to a halt, and the shield buckled. They had to run into a solid wall, apparently from an old Dutch fort that had been there before the Revolution. It was unclear if removing the wall would cause damage to the road above, but the workers chipped away at the wall, which didn't cause total collapse. It was impossible to keep the work secret, as huge pieces of machinery waited on the street and dirt constantly came to the surface. Reports on the work were common and speculation rife. New York Mayor Abraham Hall became suspicious and sent an aide with an order to inspect the construction when a part of Broadway sunk into the ground slightly. But the aide was refused entry because Beach's change in the legislation excluded regulatory oversight. In a statement, Beach brushed aside rumors. In reference to the ridiculous stories that have been circulated about our men being sworn to secrecy and the doors being closed to all persons, there's no truth to them. Meanwhile, he was outfitting his large car to look like a lounge and hold 22 people. His enormous fan, actually a mine ventilation fan, weighed 50 tons. It drew air through a grate, which caused winds so great it could blow a passerby's hat off. The car could achieve speeds of six miles an hour, blown halfway where it hit a bell and then the fan was reversed, bringing it to a smooth stop. In January of 1870, one of Beach's partners assured everyone that public inspection would soon be welcomed and mentioned a waiting room. It was becoming clear that Beach wasn't building a mail tube. On January 11th, a New York's Daily Tribune reporter, who somehow got access to the tunnel, reported on the entire thing. Beach's son Frederick later claimed that the reporter had been disguised as a workman, but it is difficult to ignore the brilliant marketing tactic that leaking the description of the project was. Beach had spent some $70,000 building a stunning waiting room, 120 feet long, with paintings, chandeliers, mirrors, a grand piano, and even a fountain stocked with goldfish. On February 26, 1870, Beach finally invited lawmakers, dignitaries, and reporters into the basement. The response was universal acclaim. Certainly the most novel, if not the most successful enterprise that New York has seen for many a day is the pneumatic tunnel under Broadway, wrote the New York Times 
a myth or a humbug it has hitherto been called by everybody who has been excluded from its interior, but now it will be open to the public. Such is expected to find a dismal cavernous retreat. Open their eyes at the elegant reception room, in the light airy tunnel, and the general appearance of taste and comfort. Beach opened the subway to the public on March 1, 1870, at 25 cents a ride. He promised to donate all the proceeds to the Union House for the orphans of soldiers and sailors. The public rode and rode and rode, some simply remaining in their seats as it traveled one block one way and then back the other. Beach promised that the day had passed when a snowstorm could cripple the city and travel would soon be free of horses in crowded streets. We propose to run the line to Central Park, about five miles in all, Beach said, and when completed, we should be able to carry 20,000 passengers a day at speeds up to a mile a minute. In less than a year, 400,000 people rode at Beach's subway. Beach was raising money and seeking to get an extension of his line. But Tweed had his own plan and was possibly angry at being fooled. He had the legislature pass his viaduct plan, which called for elevated rail lines throughout the city, at the same time as Beach's, and both bills arrived on the governor's desk. New York Governor John Hoffman vetoed Beach's bill and approved Tweed's. But Tweed wasn't invincible. Dogged by criticism in the press and a deadly riot, the New York Times began to get information from a new state auditor through former Sheriff James O'Brien about the city's accounts, which laid bare the ring's embezzlement of city funds. Tweed's power crumbled, and he was arrested. It took Beach a year and a half to get another bill before the Senate, and in the interim he had decided that his pneumatic system was impractical and he'd have to use steam engines. The bill passed on April 6, 1873, but it was too late. After years of waiting, he didn't have investors ready, and the economy collapsed in September. The Depression was so bad that it became known at the time as the Great Depression, until the Depression in the 1930s proved even worse. Beach was bankrupt and exhausted, and he gave up his dream. His tumble was converted into a shooting gallery and then a wine vault before he finally sealed it up in 1874. The tunnel, which was located where the City Hall subway station is today, was destroyed in 1912 by workers who were expanding the New York City subway system, which had been opened in 1904. They said at the time that the tunnel had been left virtually intact, that the piano was still in the waiting room. Beach himself did not live to see the New York City subway. He passed away in 1896. Of course, pneumatic messaging systems are still around today. You see them in bank drive throughs They're being used in some hospitals, some businesses. The CIA had a large pneumatic messaging system in its headquarters until 1989. The website Tomorrow's World Today notes that in 2021, the global pneumatic tube market was valued at $2.4 billion. And while pneumatic people transportation hasn't yet taken hold, technologies such as VAC trains and hyperloops have gained enough traction that in 2021, the U.S. Department of Transportation released proposed rules to regulate such technology. And so Beach's vision of transportation from the past might yet become our mode of mass transportation in the future. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. So both of these episodes are really interesting and get to talk about a, an amazing city and a city that has a lot of history, and that's New York City. And these are both, you know, places where I, I, I don't know if you mm-hmm. necessarily expect them to be uh, connected through the through these you know these specific engineering ways, but it makes sense too that a big city is going to have. Yeah. 
to need. Yeah, it's always it's always been a dynamic city yeah. in U.S. history. We've ended up doing a lot of issue episodes on New York, given that neither one of us are from New York and have not spent a lot of time there. I spent a little bit of time there, but I mean, I can tell how dynamic the city was because I certainly remember going to New York when the towers dominated the skyline. And then I got to go to New York when the scar dominated the skyline. And then the last time I was back in New York, and it's been a couple of years, it's changed. I mean, the down lower Manhattan doesn't look the same at all. I mean, they've completely replaced that with buildings that look completely different. That you can have these, you know, the sorts of skyscrapers that, I mean, alter the skyline of a major city. And that those are the, you know, in the course of a lifetime, you're literally seeing that occur. That just shows how dynamic that city can be. And there's a, there's a historian, I forget who it was, but a historian, but essentially said that every inch of New York City has also been bathed in blood. And that's true. There's you know, been so many. So we've done an awful lot of riots yeah. in New York City, too, right? So, so I mean, a lot, a lot goes on in New York City. But it shouldn't be a surprise uh, that some of the marvels of engineering in American history were going to go on in, in New York City because that's always been a primary port. It's always been the nation's largest city since uh, for, for a very, I mean, sorry, I was Baltimore, but I mean, for a very long time, New York City has been the largest city. Uh, and uh, and it is a city of, of commerce. It's, it's it's And so it's not a surprise that we have that we have a lot going on. It's also an island. So, you know, not a surprise that we're building bridges and subways because there's not there's nowhere to grow the other directions. Right. So, I mean, I think I think that all makes sense. Uh, and and it makes these parts of it uh, iconic, uh, and uh, you know that makes for I think a, a, a worthy discussion, a fun discussion. Uh, the forgotten subway is really interesting too. The secret subway is really yeah. interesting too because you know people walked over it for, I mean it's not there anymore, but I mean for you know people walked over they didn't know it was there. Yeah, for for uh, years and, uh, where yeah. and it was, gosh, it, it ended up ended up just kind of just kind of falling into disuse. Uh, but you know. Yeah. Alfred Beach, who who is the mastermind behind all of it, is an is an interesting fellow. Uh, it's it's you know I, we ended up spending uh, quite some time on his early life because like he's the reason Scientific American <laughs> is is what mm-hmm. Scientific American is. And yeah, and still is. And you know, we we reference Scientific American fairly frequently. Oh yeah, it's, it's... Uh, and uh, and also the old episodes, the old uh, issues of Scientific American are you know a goldmine for for stuff for the history guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, this it's a matter of fact. Both the episodes that we're going to talk about today end up uh, going beyond the kind of the topic of the episode yeah. to talk a lot of, about a lot of other things that are going on at the period. And really, these represent. I mean, that's what you can say about the secret subway. Uh, is that it also represents an era, an era of dreams, yeah. an era of engineering, an era of technological advancement, uh, an era when you know people would invest in a lot of stuff because they had a lot of hopes that things are going on. It uh, kind of represents the whole idea of the gilded age yeah. uh, that maybe sometimes dreams were exceeding the ability to reach it. And and uh, sometimes the wealth was a little more than you know gold pounded on the outside, uh, and uh, you know the people underneath that there was always an underclass too. That yeah. was, I mean this this kind of tells that whole story about it, and, it, and it's just an interesting engineering story. I mean it, it deserves to be remembered for for that alone. Yeah, it's I mean it's such an interesting story. I I mean I you end up liking Beach as a character uh, for mm-hmm. being someone who. Boss Tweed is definitely not going to let him do it. Not really for any better reason than Boss Tweed's not going to let him do it. And uh-huh. he and he he decides, you know, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And he just straight up lies to. And he, honestly, he he outmaneuvered, um, and in order to to make this thing happen. And I think he really believed that once people saw it, that you know, money would would come in, and that mm-hmm. Tweed wouldn't be able to to essentially oppose it anymore. And I, that ends up not really working out for him, but. Yeah, it is uh, as a story. It would be a happier ending, ending if he really, because I mean, you know, subways were definitely yeah. the way to go. I mean, it was certainly the the, the only answer to what was going on in New York City was to be able to go both up and down and use all the space that they could. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, this would be in some ways a better story if it you know had the happy ending. But I mean, uh, uh, 
yeah, what's the the movie The Pretenders where he says this way it's poetry? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes a happy ending isn't what you need to be important yeah. history, and sometimes that's poetry. You know, yeah. Well, and it's you know ultimately so many so many things change too between when he builds this and when you know the subways that we actually made and the subways mm-hmm. that we we use today. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he was, I mean, he's an interesting guy who was doing, he was doing interesting inventions. His typewriter mm-hmm. that would emboss, you know, paper is, is an interesting invention. It's a good idea. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that the, we, we decided that like Braille, where you weren't just feeling letters on paper was actually a lot easier for, for people to read <laughs> if mm-hmm. they couldn't see. But, you know, the concept of having, having a typewriter that did that is, that's, that's, that's an interesting, that he was in yeah, a place well, where I that mean, was an interesting way. So, to I mean, do he things. was a visionary, did a lot yeah. of things. Uh, and, and you're right about the technology change. Maybe it wasn't quite right to do yeah. the subway. I don't know. Uh, I mean, imagine the subway that's pulled by a, uh, you know, a coal fired steam engine. Yeah. Or by a horse. I mean, gonna, that seemed to be the, which way. the trouble in the the early underground in London is that you know there yeah. was just it was just disgusting down there because ah. you're just pumping soot, <laughs> soot. Yeah, smoke, yeah, into into a, into a and if you've got space, if you've yeah. got horses anywhere, then you're you've just got horse poop too. That's the mm-hmm. other. Well, I, and it's funny that they're they're laughing about the omnibus and the, yeah. and the, because I mean the, the, honestly the buses in New York still don't smell that good. So <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so the. If you've ever been on the subway, it's it's not necessarily roses, uh, and I mean that's just when you're moving that many people around. That's that's going to yeah. be part of what goes on. So it's kind of funny to take that all the reasons that you might say make fun of the subway today or mistrust the subway yeah. today for safety, which I don't want to get anybody get mad at me about saying New York's unsafe. But I mean, yes, you know, you gotta gotta look both ways when you're on the subway. I'm, I'm sure that that was true. Yeah, uh, you know, when 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 you were having a horse drawn bus too, that uh, yeah. uh, you know, Gosh, the, the same people are still shoved onto the yeah. same island. You know, the, those omnibuses are were crazy, and they're you know they're trying to figure out how to move people faster. But traffic <clears> was, <throat> I it seems like traffic then. I mean, you know, traffic is bad today, but it's we have some we have some sense of order, <laughs> and it <laughs> really feels like at that time they were like, there's a road and stuff is going to happen on it. <laughs> that's right yeah we, we have an episode on just a little line down yeah. the middle of the road too yeah. but i mean and we also have an episode on the epizootic which uh you know with uh when you have that many horses yeah. then that was you know there was that particular risk to it and that you know the idea that all these horses that were pulling all these wagons and carts and buses and all that sort of thing to people move people around they weren't treated very well they yeah. couldn't be you know there's not the space to do that and they you know they were worked well beyond when they should have been worked and they were, they, you know, they they took them when Gosh. they were sick because they couldn't afford not to. And I mean, you, you know, so, we I see mean, that I, with cars today, but those aren't alive. Uh, people use yeah. them past and they're breaking down. But I mean, but... you know, people people are still going to argue that cars have, you know, are offering some kind of. I mean, but uh, at some point in New York, their way of dealing with litter was just to let pigs wander the street. Well, that was <laughs> that was essentially the Middle you know? Ages. That's all they did, and that's how they dealt <laughs> yeah, with their child cars. The, and they're, you know, there's story. There's story. Europeans coming here saying, you know, you got to watch out for the pigs because they're dangerous. You know, they'll, they'll, you know, the wild pigs and dogs were a problem. And uh, so, uh, you know, there's uh, when you congregate that many people. In limited space, <laughs> yeah. and you stack them on top of each other, then lots of things happen. And that's why we talk about riots, but we also talk about blizzards paralyzing the city. And yeah. then, we, you know, we talk about the, the, you know, the, the great feats of engineering that had to be done in order to make people be able to get on and off that island. Yeah. Well, and obviously, and it, yeah, I mean, the, a good story. the concept of the subway was, was right. Mm-hmm. And his, mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess ultimately, it seems like even he decided maybe the idea of it being pneumatic was not as, uh, uh, it was just yeah, not going to work in in a you know in a large scale, uh, which is 
No one has no one has done. It would be kind of cool if we could, if we yeah. all work like the little machine at the bank, whoom, you know, and, and suck everybody. Uh, you know, and maybe you know, maybe at some point, then uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll be able to do like you know whatever maglev with superconductors, and, yeah. and you know, you'll be able. to, I don't have any idea, but it does seem it does seem. I mean, you know, uh, at, it seemed a thing to do at the time. That it was, uh, and it's 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 we wonder how many for all the things that we figured out you wonder how many ideas that someone thought was a good idea that I mean that didn't work out yeah. because you have to you know you have to try those and the other cool stories that you never know especially when you're in a city you know that old you just never know and it's funny because you know anybody in Europe's going to laugh about us saying yeah. New York City's old but uh, but uh, it, you you never know what you're walking over too you know yeah. I mean there's uh, there's there's so much underneath because the city has such well, history when they were digging when they were digging this one they run into what they think is like some old old fort although i'm i tried to look into what fort that could have been and i didn't really find any any historical evidence that would suggest that there was a fort there so i'm not sure what they ran into uh but you well, know the idea that foundation they, could have been could have been well, anything, I mean, right? in, but, in london all the time they go to build a car park and they find a, you know they find a roman fort or they find oh, yeah. a, a, you know or they find a graveyard or they find i mean that's you know, that's One how, that's how things work um <laughs> yeah that's, oh, that's true though. well they were looking for him i think but yeah <laughs> under the car park they found they, they found yeah that was that's a good story too uh but i mean it's one of the lessons of the of the of the secret subway yeah. is that uh, we don't know i i live near st louis i don't know if everybody knows that and uh st louis had these caverns that were used as huge uh, uh beer gardens uh and i mean they were massive caverns and i mean they would have hundreds of people down there you know in in what wow. you know essentially you could store the beer down there and no one knows where they are now no one knows where huh. the entrances are so presumably they're still there, but they're lost. Gosh, that's crazy. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's that's an interesting. Yeah. Uh, and you wonder, you know, you wonder what's what's in there, and that's 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 what you get with the when they went down in the secret subway, where you know they went to build a new subway, and they found the piano still there. I mean, that is that's that crazy. is to me just yeah, that is that that is, and it, it makes such an essence of the story that yeah. you know you wanted him to succeed, his plans weren't really going to work out, but I mean in the end it lasted longer than you would have imagined, yeah. and and and. It, that is that's what history is all about. Yeah, you know, that is if there's a great model for what is forgotten history, which is what we love to talk about on the History Guy, it's it's that secret subway which yeah. was literally just lost, forgotten, and then and then you know totally there it was yeah you know, totally just forgot about it. They used it as a as like a, a pool hall for a little while and then just closed it up. And and that's oh that's amazing to think that there were these things that were big deals that thousands of mm-hmm. people were excited to to ride on it and all this stuff and then ultimately it just everyone forgot about it mm-hmm. but it's also you know i try to think of in 1867 you walk into that you know that that uh this big display that he has at the american institute and how much like the future that must have felt mm-hmm. <laughs> uh when when you know you're re- this is well before yeah. uh, motor vehicles you know you're just you're in your horses and carriages and it's just absolute chaos and he has built this enormous uh fan powered thing that he can shoot you around the room and well not that fast yeah. but pretty fast you know for the people time, yeah. well i mean it would be fun to go back to the you know to one of the world's fairs yeah. or the columbian Ex- exhibition or one of those things and and uh i mean because uh, we don't really i don't think we have anything like it today really, but i mean yeah. it would be it would be fun to go back to those sorts of things and really see how you know how much of it came yeah because that was their vision of the future because and there how were much of it really was the future you have to imagine that there were a lot of ideas uh, that that were it seemed incredibly futuristic that you know it didn't end up going anywhere and uh, yeah, this, but, uh, ultimately this is this is kind of one of those ideas but it was re- such an interesting and it was really dramatic uh mm-hmm. I, I just i think of that kind of stuff and i'm like gosh this would have been so amazing yeah, and no one 
no one will experience that ever yeah, again. No, too. not I mean, like that. That is truly kind of the sensation of going there with a wonder. You think this might change the world and get that yeah. tube and have it blown around. Yeah. Unless, <laughs> unless you can fit in the tube at your bank, then, you know, you're going to. Yeah, they don't. Uh, there's, I mean, you know, if they use pneumatic systems, it's not like they're they're extinct or anything like that. But I think you, I mean, you could you could go a life without running into too many pneumatic systems. Like they're, they're not that yeah. common either. Uh, human moving pneumatic systems. I don't, I don't think they were common. I don't think though, that yeah. that was, uh, but it's, you know, it's interesting that they did use them to, in some small cases, his idea on the, uh, you know, to do mail, physical mail with just tubes in the city uh, is an interesting one. If ultimately I feel like you're like, oh, that's pretty impractical to have dug all those. But I, I mean, in think, there, I think but... there are whole buildings that use that's those. That's also so true though. Yeah. Those, yeah. Uh, and well, and it does. So, get I mean, it would around. seem it would seem like a very complex system. Yeah, uh, yeah, it would be. But I mean, it's yeah, yeah. When you were when you look, I mean, there was a lot of pie in the sky that yeah. would have gone on if those sorts of experiments. Well, and someone's got to have like a big that, idea yeah. for us to change things, you know. Well, yeah, and some of but, those and nobody there was imagining like you know a smartphone. No, I mean, absolutely so. not. Right, and I ultimately emails I think have made a lot of the uh, you know actually sending physical mail. Uh, it, within, within a lot of buildings and stuff like that. I mean, I think that's that's oh, kind yeah, of you, you just yeah. don't need to send the the actual physical paperwork. You, usually, yeah, you, you went from filling one box to another. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm old. I'm old enough. I, I used to work at a university, and you had a box, and there was something that everybody was supposed to see. And so, what you would do is you would read it, and then you're supposed to sign it, and then you put it in someone else's box. And so, you go away for a week, and you come back, and your box would be just because because everyone had, everyone box put it in your box. And now, I wonder, I wonder if they even still have boxes because now those are in emails, and those are and they're just as junk filled. You know, you can't figure out what they are. Yeah. You know, we produce more stuff than we need to. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah you don't need to have people sign them because you can just click a button and it sends it to the whole, <laughs> the whole yeah. school. Now, whether they actually read it or not is a different question, obviously. <laughs> and sometimes you shouldn't hit reply all, and yet that's what happens. So. There's, you know, there's some pitfalls with it as well. <laughs> Yeah, I the, the future isn't always what you expect it to be. It ultimately, you know, this is such a it's such a interesting story of something that gets totally forgotten. And I mean, I think you're right that you know part of part of what makes this story um, resonate is that it is there is this tragedy, and that you know some of it wasn't his fault. They essentially hit the uh, the de- the the depression, uh, not the Great Depression, but at the time it was an incredible depression, and it just dries up money for uh, in a, in that mm-hmm. kind of crazy innovation and it all just goes away mm-hmm. and i don't know if he would have i don't know if we would have seen uh, although maybe we would have seen you know some kind of subway system i mean what a decade m- more before we actually mm-hmm. got the the system that started and, and, and how much would that change history you know yeah. i don't know and it would it would look different would it work differently it's, it's hard to say yeah there was a lot of innovation that was killed by the depression that's true you know we've got a lot of episodes that talk about that where yeah. something was was going quite well and then the depression came and it was gone and then you know you have to you have yeah. find your way back to it money dries uh, up uh, you wonder where say airplane development would have gone if the depression hadn't so you know crippled you know yeah, uh, you know, it's simply the money to do that sort of thing. So if you are a fan of the History Guy and you like to listen to our podcasts or watch us on YouTube, uh, one of the ways that you can support us is by becoming a patron on Patreon. Mm-hmm. And the, what you mm-hmm. do is you'll give us a couple of dollars a month and it helps us be able to continue producing this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. There also are some perks. There are some perks. Yeah. It's 
I mean, it's a way for you to to really support yeah. the history guy. I mean, well, that's what it's there for, but it certainly we let you get some behind the scenes stuff and some access to the history guy you wouldn't typically get. Uh, but yes, you do get. I mean, we got uh, we got our nice stickers that are all over my laptop. We got uh, our challenge coins. Uh, all the way up to you can you can get a personally signed autograph photograph of the history guy uh, based on uh, if you want to give some money on Patreon. And, you know, we just I can say we love our patrons because you make this possible. You make it possible to have a team and employees and be able to continue to produce this stuff. Uh, so if you like the history guy, uh, understand this is you know what we do for a living and consider going over to Patreon. It's usually you know you can give just a few dollars to, you know, whatever you want to give. Uh, and uh, that is uh, Patreon.com slash the history guy. Uh, next up, the history guy tells the story of the Brooklyn Bridge and some of the interesting historical tidbits that people have forgotten. On this date, May 24th, 1883, 138 years ago, one of the great marvels of the Industrial Age was opened to the public for the very first time. A procession of 24 coaches, the first one of which carried U.S. President Chester Arthur and New York City Mayor Franklin Edson, crossed the 6,016-foot suspension bridge, one and a half times longer than any suspension bridge that had been built to that time, across the East River between New York City on Manhattan Island and Brooklyn on Long Island. The headline of the New York Times that day read, Two Great Cities United, although the Times gave its relative opinion of those two great cities the next day when they mentioned that the residents of Brooklyn would be happy to avoid a sometimes difficult ferry ride, but the residents of New York City had no great cause for celebration, as not one in a thousand of them would ever find occasion to use the new structure. The Brooklyn Bridge represented the might of the industrial era, the coming of age of the United States and its largest city. There's much that can be said about the Brooklyn Bridge, but it also represented unique challenges of an era of great change, an era of great contradictions, and an era of great architecture. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The carriage carrying President Arthur and Mayor Edson was not actually the first carriage to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. That event had occurred 10 days earlier, and the honor of being the first to cross the bridge in a carriage went to Emily Warren Roebling, wife of the chief engineer. In her lap, she carried a white rooster, which was supposed to represent victory. Mrs. Warren was said to be concerned that the bird might peck her or try to escape the carriage. The bird itself was said to have crowed the whole way and did not seem to appreciate the role it had to play in the spectacle. The purpose of the crossing was not merely to give Mrs. Roebling and her rooster the honor of being the first to cross the bridge, which she had played such a significant role in building, but also to test whether the horse's trotting would make the bridge wobble. The bridge didn't wobble, but New York City residents might not have been convinced as to how strong the bridge was until the following year when showman P.T. Barnum famously walked 21 elephants and 10 camels across it at the same time. But Mrs. Roebling's presence did represent some of the significant challenges that were associated with the construction of the great buildings of the 19th century. Mrs. Roebling's involvement, in fact, began with an accident. While proposals for a bridge across the East River between New York City and Brooklyn were made at least as early as 1800, the design that would become the bridge that opened in 1883 was the brainchild of German-born civil engineer John Augustus Roebling. Roebling had built important but smaller suspension bridges in the United States, such as the 535-foot Delaware Aqueduct, completed in 1849. Suspension bridges of this size were still relatively new, especially in the United States, and this project would be extraordinary, the New York Times noted. The art of building these airy structures was then in its infancy here, and Mr. John Roebling stood at the head of the engineers, who made it a study. Roebling had made a proposal for a bridge between New York City and Brooklyn in 1852. 
1867, the same year that another of his projects, the 1,642-foot Cincinnati-Covington Bridge spanning the Ohio River, was completed, the New York State Senate passed a bill that allowed the bridge to be built. Uh, New York and Brooklyn Bridge Company was incorporated, authorizing the sale of $5 million in public bonds to fund the bridge. By some accounts, bribery was involved in the deal. Still, Roebling was appointed chief engineer and began perfecting the plan for construction. Construction in that era was done by hand and, as can still be true today, included a measure of risk. In a sign of the nature of the risks of the era, on June 18, 1869, Roebling was surveying the location for the bridge when his foot was struck by a ferry. His foot was crushed and several toes had to be amputated. He died 24 days later of tetanus. His death, the first of more than two dozen associated with the construction of the bridge, represented the risks of the time. It wasn't until 1924 that an effective tetanus vaccine was produced. It wasn't until 1928 that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, the first general-purpose antibiotic which could be used to treat tetanus. Roebling's death was a stark reminder that the Brooklyn Bridge was built at a time when virtually any injury could result in a likely life-threatening infection. After John Roebling's death, his 32-year-old son, Washington Augustus Roebling, was appointed chief engineer. A Civil War veteran who had built suspension bridges for the Union Army and played a significant role securing the defense of Little Round Top during the 1863 Battle of Gettysburg, Washington had been assistant chief engineer and, after his father's death, continued to improve the design. Among his designs were the two enormous caissons, which would be used to create the foundation for the bridge's two towers. The caissons were massive, airtight wooden boxes of some 17,000 square feet. They were constructed on land, floated to the necessary spot on the river, and sunk to the floor of the river. They were then filled with compressed air, and workers would sit down into them, hand-digging the riverbed until the caisson reached bedrock, or on the New York side, compacted sand. The caisson would then be filled with concrete and become the foundation for the 900,000-ton suspension towers. It was cramped, uncomfortable, and dangerous work. The risk showed in 1870 when the wooden structure within the Brooklyn caisson caught fire. Roebling was eventually forced to flood the caisson to put the fire out, and it delayed construction for several months. But there were more risks, among them a particular risk called caisson disease. The Brooklyn Bridge was not the first example of caisson disease. Doctors as far back as the 18th century had noticed the deadly form of rheumatism that occurred with workers who worked in pressurized environments. The illness was more clearly noted in 1871 among the workers working in caissons building the St. Louis Eads Bridge. Twelve men died from the not well understood condition, whose characteristic painful symptoms resulted in the name, the Bends. The cause was decompression sickness, a condition that is the result of dissolved gases coming out of solution into bubbles inside the body on depressurization. In 1873, the project physician, Andrew Smith, noted 112 cases of the illness among the caisson workers on the Brooklyn Bridge eventually resulting in 14 fatalities. Smith coined the term caisson disease. Among those that contracted the condition was Washington Roebling, who frequently went into the caissons to supervise work. The painful condition left him incapacitated and forced to supervise construction from his bed. His wife, Emily, became his intermediary, relating his instructions to his assistants and reporting on the construction to him. She became an expert on bridge construction and materials and navigated the political waters of contracts and the board of trustees. She would later write to her son that, I have more brains, common sense, and know-how generally than have any two engineers, civil or uncivil. While she fought to maintain her husband's title as chief engineer, she is generally recognized to have been the de facto chief engineer of the project through its completion. Her experience represented the difficulty faced by women in the 19th century. At the bridge opening, speaker Abraham Stevens Hewitt described the bridge as, an everlasting monument to the sacrificing devotion of a woman and her capacity for higher education from which she has been too long disbarred. 
But the role that resulted in her carrying the rooster across the bridge in her carriage also underlined the plight of the 112 men whom Dr. Smith had diagnosed with caisson sickness. The condition, today called decompression sickness, can be effectively prevented with careful decompression procedures. In 1890, an airlock was used during the construction of the Hudson River Tunnel, an innovation that would eventually virtually eliminate the condition that afflicted Washington Roebling for the rest of his life. But the completion of construction did not end the peculiar risks of the bridge. The structure, a symbol of a modern city, also demonstrated the problems of urbanization. The crowds coming to see the monument to modernism were huge, even at a toll of one penny for pedestrians. According to the New York Times, on May 30th, just six days after the bridge opened, just after 4 p.m., a middle-aged woman coming down the steps from New York lost her footing and fell. She had been at the top of a set of seven stairs that were, the Times opined, too narrow when the width of the pathway is considered. The woman was immediately assisted by a bridge policeman, but another woman, seeing the policeman dragging the women through the crowd, screamed. This set off a chain reaction. The Times continues. Those behind made a rush forward to see what the trouble was. Those on the stairway could not hold back the throng, and in an instant, three or four persons were carried off their feet and fell. Those on the promenade above the stairway, knowing nothing of the fearful crush on the steps, surged ahead with irresistible force, and in a moment, the whole stairway was packed with dead and dying men, women, and children, piled upon one another in a writhing, struggling mass. The bizarre incident had killed 12 people, injured more than 30. While the trustees were acquitted of negligence, nonetheless they installed additional safety precautions, including the installation of emergency phone boxes and additional railings that divided the pedestrian walkway into, according to the Times, two streams, one going and the other coming, that will, it is believed, prevent any jam taking place. The bizarre tragedy seemed to be symbolic of the city whose population increased by nearly 70%, from 1.4 to 2.5 million between 1870 and 1890. More than a million people paid to cross the bridge in the first six months that it was open. And the span represented another unexpected risk. On May 19, 1885, swimming instructor Robert Emmett Odlum became the first known person to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. Odlum apparently hoped to demonstrate to people that falling through the air was safe in order to encourage them to be willing to jump into a net in the case of a fire in a tall building. He also might have been seeking fame. His intent didn't seem to be suicide, but as they say, the problem is not in the fall, but the landing. Odlum had announced his plan and had friends in a boat below the bridge ready to pick him up. Police were there to stop him, but he distracted them with a decoy, the Times reported. A small, black-colored wagon drew up at the rail. A man in a red shirt and gray tights leaped to the rail, raised his right arm straight above his head, and the other arm pressed against his side and thigh, and in an instant, Odlum had made good his boast. But that boast didn't go as planned, the New York Times continued. Whether he jumped too quick after leaving the wagon, or destroyed his balance by some movement on the rail or in jumping cannot be known. But during the descent of the body to the water, Swift as it was, those on the boat could see that it turned slightly, and that it would not strike the water with the feet squarely down. Odlum survived briefly and was picked up by the boat, but expired a short time later from internal injuries. More stunts followed, and the first known person to jump from the bridge with the intent of suicide occurred in 1892. While specific statistics are not reported, the bridges continued to attract suicide jumpers, some of whom have survived. A mental health expert was quoted on the ABC Nightly News in 2008. In general, for people who live in areas with bridges or tall buildings, jumping is going to be the accessible and lethal means for them. Simply another way that the bridge represents the challenges of life in the city. Perhaps the strangest consequence of building the Brooklyn Bridge is that the bridge has become symbolic of a very strange fraud, characterized in the line, If you believe that, then I have a bridge to sell you, in Brooklyn. The line is not merely hyperbole. It refers to a notorious con man named George C. Parker. According to the website New York City Walks, 
Parker would create fake documents and fake sales offices and bilk people by selling New York City landmarks, including once masquerading as Ulysses Grant's grandson and selling Grant's tomb. The selling plant was a possibility for collecting tolls. While the bridge opened with tolls, the pedestrian tolls were repealed in 1891 and the vehicle tolls in 1911. Parker would purport to sell the right to operate tolls on the bridge. New York City Walks explains, his greatest con was selling the Brooklyn Bridge. Legend claimed that he sold it at least twice a week, but he did sell it at least several times, including at least once for $50,000. The new owner would discover that he was the victim of a con when the New York City police officers would stop the new owners from setting up toll booths in the middle of the bridge. While George Parker has sometimes been called the greatest con man that ever lived, he couldn't have been that great because he kept getting caught. On his third conviction, a judge sent him to New York's Sing Sing Prison for life. The Brooklyn Bridge has come to be a symbol of the city. In their obituary for Emily Roebling, who died in 1903 and was eulogized recently in their series on people who were overlooked at the time of their death, the New York Times wrote, The Brooklyn Bridge would go on to become, at least according to lore, the most photographed structure in the world. A gateway to that shining city, as Thomas Wolfe once described it, whose granite towers and thick steel cables have inspired countless artists, musicians, engineers, and architects. Still today, according to the Department of Transportation, more than 100,000 cars, 4,000 cyclists, and 10,000 pedestrians cross the bridge daily. But the bridge also represented the challenges faced by the city of Gotham. It is perhaps the very embodiment of the contradictions of the Gilded Age in which it was built. So very similar in some ways to the subway, mm -hmm. and also, of course, very different. This one was much more public. Um, it's... <laughs> Another right, it really... was not a secret. That's true. Yeah. I don't know how you would keep it that way. Yes. <laughs> Building a bridge that large. But I mean, it's also, I mean, because it took, you know, the ideas were you know, yeah. forever before someone would finally come to, you know, try to, I, and it could have gone the same way as the subway. I mean, oh, yeah. so this was an idea and they had different plans. And, uh, and uh, matter of fact, I think there's a drawing in the video that people mention sometimes uh, because it was done before they'd finalized plans and the, the final towers are in a different place than they are. And, and they're like, oh, that looks weird. Well, I, you know, that's where they thought they could put them. Yeah. That's an interesting. But I mean, it's uh, it's an odd one for me because uh, the the Brooklyn Bridge is hardly forgotten history. No, that's true. But it ends up giving you a lot of room for forgotten history, talking about how we discovered, you know, the bends, uh, uh, decompression sickness. That is such an interesting, an interesting story, and it's it's kind of crazy to think that you know while they're building these things that that, that they were deep enough to be getting uh, pressure yeah. sicknesses. I don't think yeah, you think really... you think of the bends of being people are diving on the Titanic, yeah. and people that are you know building a bridge. Yeah, yeah, that's that's but that's, that's that's where we first identified it. But, you know, the whole, like, which is crazy, and the, the whole story with, I mean, you know, the guy who originally goes to do it dies. Uh, yeah, gets his toes <laughs> cut off, dies. And, you know, that's, I mean, I think I mentioned that in the episode. It shows you, I mean, you, this, these were built. Yeah. These were being designed at a time when uh, it, life was a lot more dangerous. Yeah, gosh. Any injury, imagine before antibiotics, any injury was could very much be fatal. I mean, it was very common to die. It was very common for mothers to die of sepsis, you know, after childbirth. It's, I mean, you know, that's, uh, so it is a different, there's a lot different level of risk going on. Uh, when you don't know what the bends are and they're shoving you down in a pressurized container yeah. or when if you if you scratch yourself you can die you know a horrible death of a fever two weeks later yeah that's uh, yeah and i mean and you know that would have been a serious injury today but i you almost certainly would have survived it i think yeah yeah you, you wouldn't necessarily die. i probably wouldn't have lost his toes today but you wouldn't yeah. necessarily have died so he died his son takes over he gets the bends yeah. uh, and really it's the daughter-in-law that ends up being the engineer that does it, uh, and she carries a chicken across the bridge for Which some is reason. That, that's an a, absolutely that's hysterical piece of the story. Yeah, who did, she doesn't who want to. She doesn't want luck. to be in there with the chicken. <laughs> yeah, she's afraid the chicken's going to bite her. And I mean, I would wonder why I'm one of the why they're giving me the chicken. 
Uh, and they tested the bridge by having having uh, the, them walk the elephants across it from the bottom circus. That's yeah. Uh, well, and I I can see why you might want that because this is a bridge bigger. I mean, these days usually yeah. I think we trust. You know, I, I generally trust bridges when I drive on them. Um, not not a lot of bridges where I'm at, but you know, in in St. Louis, I've been a lot of those bridges that cross the Mississippi, and I trust that they're going to hold the car. But yeah, yeah I, I can see why you know this was trust. this was one of the largest bridges. Yeah, this at the was time this and, was so new. Yeah. This was so amazing to them that they had to say, could could it really carry all this weight? And so we had to walk elephants across it, which I'd imagine the weight of the cars on the bridge are much more than elephants yeah. right now today. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I mean, I, I assume they've done they've done quite a bit of work on the bridge since since it was uh, what opened in 1883. No, it's it's but... still suspended by the same cables. Oh, though. really? I mean, really? Still the, whole, the... the principle that holds the roadway yeah. up is oh, well, still the same. True. You know, principle I was, that you always had. I yeah. was more. I, I mean, I assume that you know stuff gets old, so they got to replace this bit or that bit. But yeah, uh, I, I don't think you replace the cables on a suspension bridge. Interesting. I, I, I'd have to look up on that, but I don't think there's any you know good way to. I don't think they have. I mean, it's fair. How do you? I mean, that's what's holding up the bridge, right? So. Without it, are, and it is amazing. I mean, the cable structure on the you see why it's they call it the yeah. most photographed structure in the world. I don't know if that's true, but I mean, you can see why they call it that because the cables on it are spectacular. Yeah, it's extremely photographed. It, it opened up, you know, a lot of talk about uh, uh, the times. You know, like we talked about, you know, whether you, you know, whether you have antibiotics makes a big difference in time. Yeah, you know, whether you trust bridges makes a big difference in time, yeah. uh, and I, th- that that becomes a, a, a really a story beyond. Of course, you know, of course, we built the, the Brooklyn Bridge, but you know, also you know, people jumping off the bridge and falling off the yeah. bridge and falling down the staircase and the and the and, you know the guy selling the bridge and you know this was a great springboard <laughs> yeah to uh, all for, these different uh, little yeah. uh, I, I mean that's an interesting one I've heard I mean I've I'd heard that you know the saying of, of I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn uh, but it is funny there was a guy literally doing that yeah. there's a lot of times you know you get these sayings like that and we we don't really know exactly where they came from uh, and there will be yeah. a bunch of different theories but this one is pretty funny that we've got a guy who who was literally selling the bridge and that's... selling the Brooklyn Bridge yeah well we did one on uh, Fisher too what was his name because we t- when when someone says I've got some you know, waterfront property in Florida or oh whatever. yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 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 You know, we've we got the animal the the, the story behind that one too so yeah there's that i can't imagine though thinking you bought the brooklyn bridge i mean i mean how how large would his scam have to be you would think for you to believe that this was a serious enough you know endeavor that you would actually purchase the book because you would think you would at least meet the mayor right and can put up so that yeah because they're like we're gonna try to put up toll booths and the police are like no get out of here i'm like yeah you would think there would be some some more some like more that would be some guy in the alley going psst Here's the here's the bridge. You have the right to the tolls on the bridge. Here's a contract. Doesn't it look legally? Doesn't this contract look all legally? You didn't have to meet anyone who you would would see would appear to actually presumably own the bridge. I you you I mean obviously there's you know those are the kind of people who are like there's a sucker born every minute for them to yeah, but I mean clearly he was convincing enough that I mean, these are people who were actually a, yeah but he was bad enough at it that he kept getting caught he did and keep getting in prison caught, for the rest of his life which yeah. he probably deserves to be fair so <laughs> I, so I mean both the episodes that we talk about today were really I mean that what was going on at the yeah. time you know these these become a way to see you know what was going on at the yeah. time you know the book the Brooklyn Bridge was not secret it was not lost um, and yet they you know the and the secret subway were but they both give that similar idea and that's people with big dreams and big visions yeah. and they could have failed at any moment and, and uh, the, the 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 way that the public reacts to them and what it says about the whole period of the time yeah. and you know we still build bridges today i mean we built a new bridge across the across the mississippi here not too long yeah. ago here in in st louis but it seems i mean it just doesn't seem like as grand a project yeah well, we, uh, got, but at the same time, it seems to take and... so much longer for us to do it, you know. And I mean, it's just, it's not it's, it's another one of those where like, yeah, we couldn't do that today. I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine building the Brooklyn Bridge today, and I, I just yeah. don't know. 
would be a different experience. And it certainly wouldn't be... It would be... certainly be a different experience. People wouldn't be... Millions of people wouldn't be crossing it for a penny each. Either. Yes. Oh. Right? That's not... We've got we've got all of our other ways of entertaining ourselves, I guess. Uh, but I, I do. I mean, you know, this made me think that uh, I think we take bridges for granted. And I mean, this is a bridge like that across the water that it was across. The engineering necessary mm-hmm. to build that uh, was was really incredible. And it was it was incredible mm-hmm. for the time. But I think to some extent, you know, it's still incredible that, that how they did it and what it they did. And how yeah, we built all those cars going across that, across yeah. the river. I mean, it's amazing. And yeah. they, they built and that you know, it's a beautiful before structure. cars. It, is, it aesthetically, it's aesthetic. yeah, they built it before cars. Yeah. And that you can drive all this. It's, I think, well, I mean, you know, every way that you have to get onto the island there is, you yeah. know, it's, it's extraordinary because they, they all are carrying just huge numbers of people, which was kind of the, the premise of the first episode talking about, yeah. I mean, you got all these, but I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you build a tunnel under the river to, yeah. to get from New Jersey to, to New York? Uh, and uh, well, how do you move people with the ferry? How do you move yeah. people? And then the, the the bridges, each and every one of them is a story in themselves. And yeah. certainly the Brooklyn Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge is one of the most uh, spectacular, well, you know, well recognized of those. Yeah. And, you know, who knew that talking about that would bring, you know, all this other stuff into light, too, yeah. that's worth talking about. Yeah, it's, it's that, really, yeah. it's really, really cool. And I mean, some of it is, uh, it really does make me feel like we've lost some of our kind of awe of yeah. things that really do yeah. deserve some awe. <laughs> yeah. we were so used to we're like yeah. oh we build skyscrapers i was like it's still amazing that we can do that you know it's it yeah well i mean the, you know the freedom towers there like i said yeah. you know where the where the towers used to be in yeah we have lost awe of the building of the skyscrapers yeah. i think and, and you know maybe uh you know you might even argue that some parts of the world are rediscovering that and that's yeah. why there's towers taller than our towers now and stuff like that that the you know uh, uh, really impressive buildings that they built these days they've got some crazy plans yeah. uh what egypt is building a new capital and uh they're their plans for it are, are crazy. I mean, it's absolutely wild yeah. stuff. I wonder how much of that will actually, you know, come to fruition. But or what's is Saudi Arabia that wants to build a city that just goes in a straight line, uh, which seems in, insane to me. But <laughs> I still yeah, like, I mean, wonder so, what that I kind mean, of is, are, the, are the places still dreaming? Are we not still dreaming in America? I mean, yeah. you always get at least some people that will comment on that. Uh, and you know, I think that there's an argument that we, you know, that maybe we just dream differently, or you know, there's always you know, some kind of counter argument. But it is when you look at these projects and what people were willing to take on, and even their willingness to fail. Yeah. Uh, you had you do have to say, do we, I mean, do we truly see the same thing today? Do we have the same yeah. sorts of grand dreams? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, the the the, the Brooklyn Bridge is among other things. Uh, it's a bridge, but it's yeah. also history and history that reminds us of where we've been and maybe where our dreams can take us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.